0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Washington Post columnist, Megan McArdle, making a return visit, and we're always thrilled to have her. So let us start with the woes of Governor Cuomo. Uh, The uh, report came out this week by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, documenting accusations uh, against Cuomo, not just from the original women who had come forward, but from a grand total of 11 uh, there were 179 witnesses that they heard from. Um, and uh, it paints a pretty bad picture of Cuomo's behavior uh, including hitting on and and uh, really sexually harassing in the grossest way uh, his uh, one of members of his security detail and and others. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Damon Linker. Um, this uh, we've seen, this movie before in different iterations, of course. Um, What do you make of the comparison to, say, uh, uh, Ralph Northam or Bill Clinton or Donald Trump, who all decided that they were going to uh, adopt a strategy of just fighting it, denying it, denying everything and bullying their way through?
1: Well, that clearly is what, Cuomo appears uh, still eager to try to do. Um, uh, We we shall see how successful it would be. I don't think in any of those cases you had quite the preponderance of uh, people in his own, in, in the person's own party uh, lining up so quickly to say, yeah, gotta go. And that includes a majority of the Democratic majority. Well, it includes the Democratic majority in the New York State Assembly. And that, of course, is where the rubber really is going to hit the road. But to have the president of the United States himself say on the very day that this report was released that Cuomo should resign. That's that's a lot of pressure. So I think the real comparison here would be to the Al Franken case where Al Franken, former uh, senator from Minnesota, resigned or was pushed to resign when uh, sexual harassment uh, allegations were made. And there was a lot of debate among Democrats at the time, and then subsequently asking, you know, maybe did we act too quickly, uh, uh, you know, move too fast to, to gut the career of one of our most promising members. But um, but you know the the accusations against Cuomo are far more severe, and they all took place much more recently, and to people on his own staff. And so I think uh, what we're seeing here is actually, I mean, I, it, the most important aspect of it, I think, has to be seen in the context of uh, the kind of Trumpification of our politics, and the fact that even after. We had a president who did and confessed to on tape uh, some of the things that Trump did and all the accusations of rape that have floated around him for years with no real consequence and his party not really doing anything about it or uh, treating it as anything to disqualify him, you have the Democrats very clearly standing up here and saying, you know, this guy should go for this behavior. And that shows, I think, a very real difference between the parties that persists. The Democrats might have all kinds of uh, problems and defects and weaknesses that I'm sure will come up at other points in this podcast. But on this issue, I do think that they are uh, behaving uh, much more admirably than their than their partisan rivals in Washington.
0: Um, Megan, one of the things that people say about the Al Franken case was that the Democrats pushed him out um, to, to own the cons, as it were, you know, to prove that they were willing to um, hold one of their own accountable. But, um, but it strikes me that some of the problems that arise in these kinds of situations is the failure to make distinctions uh, what what uh, Franken was accused of was so trivial compared to what we're dealing with with Cuomo. Don't you agree?
2: Oh, I think that's right. But you know, I and I think that the way to look at this is not quite as a, like. Well, they're doing better than Trump. I think what we see with this pattern is that two things determine whether you are going to be forced out or not. And the first is: Are you is your uh, is your exit? Going to empower the other party or your own power or your own party, mm-hmm. and I think in 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 the case of Al Franken, right, it was cheap to to push him out because of course uh, he was going to be replaced by a Democrat, right? In the case of Bill Clinton it was not cheap to push him out. <laughs> Even though he was going to be replaced by a Democrat, it would cripple the party's uh, chances going into the tw- uh, 2000 elections or so it was perceived. And nor for the party rallied behind him. Um, Andrew Cuomo had the bad luck to choose to do all of this in, uh, or as it is alleged anyway, mm-hmm. um, in the state of New York where Democrats control. And so you can't make the argument that like you guys need to stand behind me because otherwise the Republicans are going to take over. So the next question is, you know, do you are you sh- kind of shameless enough to refuse to resign? <laughs> um, and we saw this with Ralph Northam, right? It's yep. not just Donald Trump because Donald Trump was playing the same thing it was for the, for his supporters. It was, well, if we lose him, there's no one like him that we can just put into place. Mm-hmm. Um And so, you know, Northam had a Democratic lieutenant governor. However, that Democratic lieutenant governor was having his own scandals., yep. um and he just stuck. And his base forgave him. The last polling that I saw had indicated that, that black New Yorkers, for example, were still staying behind him. And that's a really important base in, in New York State. Um, and I think that what he is hoping is that, well, for the activist base of the party, this is a big deal and is going to trigger a lot of pressure for the actual voters they may just not care as much as the activists do, and that if he just sticks it out, they're probably not going to be able to get up enough juice to impeach him. The question is, can they find other means of pressure? Can they get donors to pressure him? Can they get the president to say, I will make it hard for the state of New York if you do not you know, resign in favor of someone else? Um And I don't know the answer to that, but I actually tend to suspect that he can probably survive if he sticks in it. His future in democratic politics will probably be over. But I think that that was sealed at the moment that the report came out.
0: Linda... um... When you look into what the impeachment inquiry, which has been going on for many months in the uh, New York legislature, what they're looking into, the sexual harassment allegations are just one thing. They're also looking into the fact that – or the the allegations, I should say – that the governor monkeyed around with nursing home death data and attempted to hide – the data, which is a pretty serious uh, offense, that he may have used state resources to help write his memoir, which is maybe a little more uh, uh, trivial. And then um, finally, this one I had not heard of until I did a little research that he covered up structural problems on the Mario Cuomo bridge, which is the bridge that's replacing the Tappan Z. Um, Apparently there were all these, you know, joints and things that were breaking and, uh, and apparently they, uh, they tried to cover that up. That's,
3: that's kind of concerning. (laughs) Uh, It it is concerning. And I will say, I think he's toast. Um, Okay. And I don't say, I don't say that with any glee. I'm actually a fan of Governor Cuomo. I uh, was one of those people who tuned in every day during the beginning of the pandemic uh, to listen to his briefings. He was a steadying voice who was Uh, focusing on science and was a reassuring figure at a time when you had Donald Trump in the White House, who was anything but. So, um, and I think he's been a a good governor. And I think he's, you know, represents a somewhat more moderate wing of the Democratic Party. And I I find that uh, attractive. So I don't say it with pleasure at all but I don't think he can withstand this. And I think you're exactly right. It's not just the allegations of sexual misbehavior. And by the way, they are very different than some of the scandals. I think the closest uh, that comes to it is Bill Clinton. Uh, And even though that was considered a consensual uh, relationship, she was a very young woman. And most feminists, uh, if it, the name had been something other than with a D behind it, uh, probably would have found the activity that took place, sexual harassment, because of the imbalance in power uh, between uh, President and uh, Miss Lewinsky. But uh, I do think that um, it, it's not just the sexual uh, behavior. It is also this administration of his from reading these reports sounds like such an incredibly toxic environment to work in. I mean, that, you know, the screaming, the intimidation, the threats of retaliation, retaliation. Yeah. That, you know, the, the staff that is around him and protects him is kind of a palace guard. Uh, this is very, very uh, unattractive. And I think, um, is not something that um, most people, you know, would approve of. And I just, I I think he's, uh, as I say, I think he's toast. I think there are enough calls. He does not want to go through an impeachment. And you've got enough state legislators now coming forward and saying the impeachment is going to uh, proceed if he does not resign, that I think it's going to take him, maybe it'll take him a week, maybe it'll take him a couple of weeks. But I cannot imagine that he wants to subject himself to an impeachment, it will ruin him for you know a future life, sitting on corporate boards, doing other kinds of things that people in high office do after they leave office. Um, that I don't. Well, that's I just, close to him anyway. I well, think. probably for yeah. a while. For a while, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, probably. Uh, but you know, he he could go out and and you know make money. I think uh, still. But if he's impeached, that's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, um, Bill, I'm gonna come to you now with an observation that I have a feeling um, knowing you, you're not gonna wanna weigh in on. So I'm gonna just make this observation. If you care to comment on it, please do. If not, I will pitch you a different question. But my comment is that, um, that there is this tendency. Look, we all agree that this behavior is gross and unacceptable. And, uh, you know, worthy of being hounded from office over. Um, but but um, there's a tendency that I have noticed, especially on outlets like NPR, to treat women in such an infantilizing fashion what do I mean well they say we're now going to bring you a report about Mario Cuomo uh, alert for 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 sexual abuse you know sufferers this this contains possibly disturbing information and then they present the story and they say you know he grabbed somebody he kissed somebody without asking he you know and and I listen to that and I think come on. You know, women are not, you know, they're not little fragile snowflakes to use a overworked phrase. But honestly, you know, the the notion that we can't even hear words like a man grabbed a woman's breast without, you know, needing fainting, a fainting couch is insulting. So you can comment on that if you want. If not, I have a different question for you.
4: <laughs> as as Groucho
0: famously said ladies and gentlemen these are
4: my principles and if you don't like them I've got others <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh look uh I think frankly Mona that you have to put it as delicately as possible standing to speak on that question that I don't okay right I'm in yeah. no position to pronounce on what Women do or should find insulting. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if there was ever a time in my life when I might have been tempted to pronounce on that question, that time is long (laughs) past.
0: Okay. All right. Well, is there anything else that you care to comment on about the whole Cuomo business?
4: Yes, uh, there is. Uh, And that is uh, that there is you know, not just a political dimension to this, but also a legal dimension. Uh, I actually sat down and read the New York State criminal statutes of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, much of the conduct detailed in the attorney general's uh, report falls squarely under the forcible touching title of that statute.
0: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, And so there is some real criminal jeopardy here. I would think it unfortunate if it went in that direction. Uh, There is a pretty good case for prosecutorial discretion. But, uh, you know, the the governor uh, is, as I said, in some jeopardy. And there might be an arrangement worked out. I'm not saying that anybody is suggesting this, and I'm not even saying that I'm exactly suggesting it myself. But there might be an arrangement worked out where, in in return for a resignation, uh, uh, that both criminal and civil liability would would be waived there would be an agreement not to go down those roads oh wait a second uh,
0: civil civil liability that means that the women would not be able to sue him
4: well uh that is that is one possibility and uh you know because Wouldn't they
0: have to agree to that themselves yeah, i mean of course,
4: of course they would yeah. and you know and but but the question is whether governor cuomo uh and I, I know him a bit, and I have very reliable insider reports, you know, as to his character and disposition. Uh, I think he will be tempted to dig in, perhaps under all circumstances, but certainly in circumstances in which he faces years of lawsuits that could ruin him financially. So it's a very complicated situation.
0: Yeah it is because the women who were his victims would have to say that in the name of you know relieving New York state of this horrible governor that they would sacrifice their opportunity to get
4: not, yeah I'm not, I'm not saying that they will do that or that right. they should but I'm just yeah. trying I'm just trying to place the politics here yeah, In a legal context, which does not simplify this. No,
0: it definitely, it definitely doesn't. Th- these are we should clarify these these alleged crimes if they're proven. They are misdemeanors, but still, that's a misdemeanor is still a crime. All right, um, let us turn now to the evictions uh, moratorium. Uh, this this week, um, President Biden. Uh, was asked about whether his uh whether the cdc was going to extend the eviction moratorium that that expired and um i'll take this first to you megan he said this is what biden said i've sought out constitutional scholars to determine what is the best possibility and he said and he found that um, most constitutional scholarship is that it's not likely to pass constitutional muster but there are others who say that it may and it's worth the effort. Uh, so, hey, constitution, sh- constitution, whatever, right? I mean, who cares?
2: Yeah, I think, like, first of all, this was, you, you had some time to think about this and the best you could come up with was maybe I found a guy who said it's, I don't know, <laughs> it might be a woman. I found this one person who thinks it might be constitutional. I mean, everyone else seems to not think so. And of course, the Supreme court has very clearly signaled that they're not going to find it constitutional. Right. Um, but we're going to give it a shot anyway. This is terrible, right? This is an abdi- this is just an abdication of your, the oath he took to uphold and protect the constitution of the United States. Um, but I think there's a, a kind of lesser marked problem, which is why are we having this moratorium? Unemployment is at 5.9%. We are literally record number of jobs openings, um, twice as many as in tw- as far back as, as as recently as 2014, we have twice as many job openings now. Um, households came out of the pandemic in better financial shape than they went into it. Half of the people on unemployment have been making more on unemployment than off, and the ha- that half is the bottom half, which tends to be the people who are most vulnerable to eviction. There's no economic rationale for this. There's not really a humanitarian rationale for it, unless you want to say we just shouldn't allow people to get evicted because eviction is bad, and eviction is bad. Um, but – that said, you know, it's very hard to imagine how you would have a system of private property without allowing landlords the right to evict people who do not pay their rent. And if you are not going to do that, then we're kind of at reimagining the entire American economy, which is not something I think not, it's certainly that's a project that the squad is interested in. It's not a project that Joe Biden is interested in. And so rather, I think this is just he understands he doesn't really want to do this. But he doesn't want to take the blame for it. So he's just sort of tossing this bone to his his progressive base in the hopes that now the Supreme Court's going to take care of the problem for him. But that's really a kind of disturbing precedent. And what's equally disturbing is that the left would, you know, if you think about how the media would have reacted if Donald Trump had said about a policy, well, I mean, sure, they're probably not going to be constitutional. Those dumb constitutional lawyers, what do they know? I'm doing it anyway because I, like, you know people would be going ballistic. We would be, we would be in the middle of our third wave of panicked editorials on the dark night of fascism descending over the land, and Joe Biden does it, and we kind of shrug. And this is mm-hmm. not because I think, look, I voted for Joe Biden, and there's a reason for that. That said, uh, the way that you protect the, the the institutional norms that, as I recall, Democrats really cared about as as, as recently as January, is by not cutting yourself special checks, you know, special exceptions. Um, and that is what is going on. And that is perhaps the most disturbing angle of this whole story is not Joe Biden's really terrible justification for it, but the way that we have now reacted to
0: that. Yeah. Damon, Megan, you know, makes the point that, um, this is in essence, if you're, if you're just going to sort of eliminate, uh, Evictions as a as a remedy for landlords, and you're really sort of throwing a wrench into the entire capitalist system, which relies upon, you know. Counterparties doing what they're asked to do. And, um, and, you know, many landlords themselves are in fairly desperate situations where they've often been going without rent, but they still have to pay their mortgages. They still have to pay for repairs. They still have to pay, pay for taxes. I mean, so, so the notion that this is the clear humanitarian thing to do, even that I find uh, unconvincing.
1: Oh, so do I. This is, this is not good. Good. This is definitely a low point for Biden so far, in my opinion. I think we're probably, I don't know, when we get to Bill, see what Bill thinks. But I suspect pretty much everyone else for sure is not going to be very happy with this on this podcast. Uh, For everything Megan said, because of what it implies about sort of like, the furthest progressive fringe uh of the left in this country like seems to have an attitude that like as long as anything bad or unjust is happening to anybody anywhere we somehow haven't finished our work we must remake the world so that No one gets evicted anywhere. No one ever, you know, has to scramble to make ends meet, put food on the table. I mean, obviously, as a society, we put in place programs to try to soften the blows of uh, capitalism and creative destruction and the other things that happen in life, but not without limit. And this is an example, as you indicated, uh, Mona, along with Megan, where it seems like it's a it's a solution in search of a problem, given the current context. I would also add one more element to the bizarre quality of Biden's statement the other day about this that Megan didn't really emphasize. It's not just that he admitted that well, yeah, most constitutional scholars think this won't pass muster, but I found a guy or girl <laughs> to 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 support it. He also indicated that. He sort of assumes it'll get knocked down, but by the time it is, the policy will have done its good, and so that's fine. It sort of made it seem like I can propose something that pretty much nod, nod, wink, wink, we all understand is unconstitutional, but it'll take a while to work its way through the courts. And while that's happening, I can do whatever I want. That is... Uh, as, you, as, as you both indicated, like if, if Trump had come up with that kind of a rationale, well, oh, I'll do this at the border, I'll, I'll impose this new regulation or get rid of this, uh, this or that regulation because I or my base want it. And yeah, sure, it's going to be uh, deemed unconstitutional, but that's going to take five months. For five months, we get to enjoy it. That's not the way you run a constitutional government. And I know that he knows better. And the fact that he's decided that he has to throw uh, such a large bone to the left wing of the party on this is a little depressing for me, I have to say.
0: Yeah. Um, to be clear, uh, Trump did do those things. I mean, he <laughs> absolutely, he, he absolutely <laughs> did them. Uh, you know, including. But he the, didn't. You know, he didn't moving.
1: explicitly say. Well, uh, he did I'm say. D- Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I I don't recall, at least offhand, him explicitly saying, yeah, this is unconstitutional, but it's going to take months for the courts to tell me that and we're going to do it in the meantime.
0: No, but he did say something potentially even worse, showing that he completely misunderstands the Constitution, namely saying Article 2 says I can do whatever I want. (laughs) Well, yeah, sure.
1: And, and, and Nixon said, uh, Nixon famously said, uh, if the president does it, it's legal. It's,
4: it's legal. right?" So yes, exactly. there are
1: some precedents for this, but I don't think Biden wants to be looking to Nixon and Trump as his president. Yeah, well,
0: that, that's, that's absolutely true. Okay. So Bill, um, Cori Bush, new Congresswoman from Missouri slept on the Capitol steps. Um, and uh, made a big uh, a big splash about this eviction moratorium. She's now one of the members of the squad. Um, and she was aided in all of this by some of those uh, same you know, those progressive congresswomen, but also not just by them. I mean, uh, Chuck Schumer, Stopped by and said, "You did this. You guys are fabulous." And he embraced her. And Adam Schiff had his picture taken. And Dean Phillips, moderates. Um, so uh, the the left wing of the Democratic Party was was uh, asserting itself, and uh, and they succeeded the, 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 because the moderates joined them, including Nancy Pelosi.
4: Well, uh, I can't argue with that, uh, although. Uh, the left wing of the democratic party might very well have preferred to win the Ohio primary.
0: (laughs) We'll get to that in our next segment. (laughs) But I,
4: you know, I do uh, beg to differ with a fair amount of the commentary that's preceded me. Uh, I've learned with interest that apparently nobody else on this show uh, reads the wall street journal, uh, because if you had, you would have been in no doubt about where I stand on this. Uh, the uh, but
0: here's—I read your column, Bill. I know where you stand. Yeah, well, <laughs> nobody else did. Uh,
4: and here, you know, and here is here is some context. The Congress of the United States not once, but twice, decided that there was a major problem afflicting millions of renters across the country uh, that could only be solved with an infusion of public money into the pockets of landlords to make sure uh, that the landlords could pay their bills while ensuring that people who couldn't pay their bills would not be thrown out into the street. The latest uh, survey from the Census Bureau, not well known as a partisan institution, found that there were 7.2 million households in imminent jeopardy of of being evicted. That the that the aggregate uh, the aggregate debt uh, is somewhere between 27 and Uh, $40 billion, depending on whether you believe uh, Mark Zandi or some of the other people who've tried to estimate it. Uh, The the median debt per indebted household in danger of of eviction is many thousands of dollars, which they have no capacity of paying, even if they started working tomorrow, which many, many of them can't for various reasons. Uh, And what we're talking about is a failure of federalism. The administration of this program was consigned to the states and localities, which miserably failed to get any money out the door. Of the $46.5 billion that was supposed to be spent by now on this program, a grand total of $3 billion has been expended, screwing both landlords and tenants and now the Biden administration, very inartfully, is trying to buy time uh, to, you know, to allow the states and localities to do what they should have been able to do months ago. And here we are. Uh, is this a constitutional crisis on Trumpian scale? Hardly. You know, it's, it's a tale of ineptitude that includes the White House for the record, by the way, the person that they rounded up to give them advice about this latest strategy was none other than Lawrence Tribe, uh, who, is, who is a major name, although hardly apolitical in these matters. So at any rate, I think we're hyperventilating a bit. That said, uh, I do not think that the president of the United States— should do something that he believes to be illegal or unconstitutional, and then, and then announce that fact. And you know that was not something uh, that a president should do, and it was not Joe Biden's finest hour.
0: Linda, um, as Bill documented in his piece, um, the Congress authorized almost $47 billion to solve the problem of people who had lost their jobs and would otherwise be facing eviction during COVID. And only a tiny fraction of that money got spent in the way it was supposed to be spent. Is there a larger lesson here, one would think, about the efficiency of government, about the ability of government to solve problems? I mean, we are living in a moment where everybody just seems to be floating along on the assumption that the government is omnicompetent and capable of doing great things, and nobody stops to say, "Uh, you know, the less it does, the better, and the more it's narrowly tailored, the better, and yeah, write checks to individuals by all means, they're good at that. But, uh, but devising programs and elaborate schemes to improve matters, a eh, little skepticism is in order.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, yes, I think, you know, about $3 billion of that almost $47 billion that the Congress allocated to cover uh, rent for people who would in fact have been put out on the street uh, has actually gone out the door. And that is the big problem. And as you suggested, it is much easier, much more efficient. And as we found certainly during COVID, you know, writing checks to individuals, managed to uh, do a lot of good. It's staved uh, off uh, poverty. I mean, we've had a reduction in poverty during uh, the pandemic, which is, you know, in, incredible in some right. ways. Um, so, you know, how you would end up doing this. But, you know, I, I want to say a, a, a word here for landlords, um, and maybe I say it uh, in a self-interested way because I am one. Uh, I uh, I come from a, a family. My grandfather uh, was in the real estate business at one time, and I decided, you know, when I was beginning to plan for a retirement in which I have zero pension. I have no money that will come to me except my social Security uh, check. when I when I quit working that I would buy uh, uh, some houses and rent them out. Uh, I'm a very good landlord. But if my renters don't pay me, I will default on my mortgages. I don't have the kind of money that I can just carry people uh, forever. And and I think that, you know, one of the things, the way in which this was done, you know, perhaps um, there should have been a way. I know that the, the current rules... Have a lot of paperwork entailed. And I guess part of the problem is sometimes the landlords are not um, very happy with their tenants and they may want to get rid of them anyway. And so maybe they're being negligent. But there should have been a way, given the huge number of federal employees we have working in the housing area, that they could have come up with rules and a way to get money out the door uh, to stop the evictions from happening. When the evictions we're in fact truly going to put people out on the street uh, who, you know, did not deserve to be put out on the street. And I think that's the other issue. I mean, I think Megan's point that we have very low unemployment, that we really have a a jobs crisis right now. We're not talking about it much. But the fact is, you cannot go anywhere without seeing help wanted signs, in stores, in restaurants, everywhere. There is a difficulty now in finding workers. And so, I, you know, I just think that it's, um, we're just assuming that all of the people that are refusing to pay their rent are really, you know, law-abiding good citizens who, but for COVID, would have been making their payments on a regular basis. And I think that's naive. And uh, I just, you know, this idea that that um, you're going to have the president of the United States basically saying, well, we're going to do something even though we know it's probably not kosher, um, but by the time they catch us at it, maybe we will have figured this out. It is exactly right. This is exactly the kind of behavior uh, that we have criticized uh, Donald Trump for. And certainly he did a lot of things on the border that um, were unconstitutional and got shot down a number of times but what would have happened if he had just simply, you know, said, well, we're going to do it anyway. Um, well, he did in some cases, <laughs> <say Yeah. that. laughs> but you know, there was a hue and cry. And I, I, I yeah. think that's really to,
0: Yeah. And, and just to, to, to put a, uh, a big, you know, line under your earlier point, you know, incentives matter. And when people are, you know, you should, you, we can't romanticize human beings. I mean, when people are earning more collecting unemployment than they are working, of course, you're going to have problems hiring people. Um, and, and when you put on you know, continue a mor- a moratorium on evictions well past the point that you need to, then some people are just going to be taking advantage of that and not paying their rent when they should. And so it's just, it's, it's, um, Part of this romanticization of, of humanity that I think is a is a, a failing of the left in general. I'm, I'm being very anti-left today. I, you know, all those people who were convinced I was moving into the Democratic Party may be having second thoughts. All right, um, let's move on to uh, the good news about the Democratic Party, which is that uh, based on the results of some of these primaries, uh, it looks like the moderates are winning. Um, We had a special election in Ohio 11, uh, was, uh, sorry, Ohio 15, it was an 11 way race. Um, and, uh, and the winner, uh, was Chantal Brown. Um, so let's start with you, Megan. Uh, is this, uh, is this the, along with the other races that moderates seem to be doing well in, um, is this the message now that uh, that maybe Joe Biden is paying too much and Pelosi for that matter. And the rest are paying too much deference to the progressives because on the ground, they are, uh, they're not doing well.
2: Yeah. I this is a little bit surprising for me because I love Nina Turner, who the progressive candidate who lost. I mean, look, we don't agree on basically anything politically, mm-hmm. but you know, she was she was the opener for Bernie Sanders at a lot of rallies uh, in in the in the pre pandemic times, right? Um, and she's an amazing talker, and she really, you know, she's passionate, she's engaging, uh, she speaks just just like beautiful flowing prose roaring out of her mouth. Um, It's, it's really, you know, a great show and I really enjoyed it. And so I'm, I'm a little surprised that she didn't do better. And I think that it does tell you something about where the party is versus where the party thinks it is. And, and I think this also goes back to something that people have been saying for a while, which is Twitter is not the real world. You have this terrible situation We're not just journalists, although journalists are a big problem, but the whole political class has gotten captured by social media where they can all see each other talking at once. Where they can enforce, actually, where they can enforce a set of social norms that push people farther and farther away from where the center of even the the Democratic Party is. Um, And yet, because that's because you see it all the time, right? Anything that is happening to you constantly feels like it must be some sort of universal truth rather than a very personal, very local phenomenon. And so they they tend to think that what they're seeing on Twitter in some way represents the voice of the American people. And so they think that things like you know, all you know, like eviction moratoriums, they're not really actually very popular anymore because people understand that we've recovered, and we don't need to do that. They were popular at the height of the pandemic when people couldn't go out and they were worried that people would go out and first of all spread infection and second of all, lose their jobs and be out on the street. Um, but people aren't worried about that that now, but but because the the left is so vocal and so able to coordinate on Twitter, people listen to them far out of proportion to what their actual electoral influence is. They can win in districts that are really, really, really far left. Um, but those aren't the districts where most of the people in the United States live. They're just the p- the districts where most of the political class lives. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and so I think this is, has created a terrible optical illusion that um, is exacerbating a tendency that was already ongoing in both parties which is that there's been a decline of what you might call actual representation for grassroots movements. So if you think about what's the heart of the Democratic Party traditionally, it's the labor movement, certainly in the 20th century anyway, right? Well, the the labor leaders are elected by their membership. They are in some ways really representative of that membership, and they are directly accountable to that membership. If they make the membership mad, the membership can get rid of them. And if you contrast that with who is now the, the the voice of you know of various policies in the Democratic Party? It's these activist groups that don't represent their community in the same way. It's not like Black America got together and elected Black Lives Matter. Um, and and yet they're treated as if they are as if they are representative as if they have been chosen as the voice of, of their community and as if they're they're kind of negotiating on behalf of that community with you they're not they're negotiating on the half on behalf of a much smaller membership that is often really not representative of their community and you see this with the emergence of latinx uh which is something that a, a recent poll just showed four percent of of um Hispanics, which is what they they chose. Uh, they did a poll of Hispanics. Four percent of them preferred Latinx. The overwhelming majority, uh, the the majority choice, or the plurality choice, was Hispanic. Um, but Latinx had become super common, pushed by activists who were engaging in coalitional politics. Right? It was it was a trade off with with feminists, with transgender activists, and so forth. But it wasn't something that was organically part of the community, and they weren't really authorized to make that trade. But journalists who were not uh, Hispanic had treated it as if they were actually authorized to make that trade and that we now all had to shift because that was you know, the new locution. And this is a very small thing. I don't think it matters in any cosmic sense. But it does matter in that I think it shows a real problem for Democratic Party politics. And I think Republicans have their own version of this, by the way. Um, but I think that the, the, at the moment it, what is most apparent is that where the party thinks it is Is really, really different from where the party actually is in a way that I think, frankly, you know, we center right intellectuals (laughs) were in that position in 2015, um, and that that is going to have to be rectified for the party to move forward.
0: So, Damon, um, in Louisiana, too, the moderate one; in the Virginia governor's race, the moderate one; in New York City, the moderate one, um, and uh, and here in this Ohio race. you had uh, AOC, you know, campaigning uh, for uh, Turner. You had uh, Bernie Sanders campaigning for. But on the other side, you had uh, you had uh, Jim Clyburn and Hillary Clinton and other members of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus weighing in uh, for uh, Brown. And um, you know, it's it's a clear. Um, it's a clear lesson, isn't it, about uh, where the power really lies uh, in the Democratic Party, where the real where the world, um, sort of uh, center of gravity of the party is.
1: Well, sure. Although I would, I would want to slightly amend uh, the way you put that. It's not really about the power because the the activists have enormous power, and and, well, and even yes. and and even uh, you know, I love what Megan was saying about, especially the contrast between the labor union movement and its influence within the party versus activists today. But the other component is, of course, the donors, the very wealthy people who are funding these activist groups who then go out and claim to speak for the voters when they, in fact, Don't. And very often say things that, uh, you know, rank and file Democratic voters don't know anything about, don't particularly care about, Um, you know, on the on the Twitter dimension. I would just go back briefly to the Ohio election and and point out that uh, Nina Turner has 485,000 Twitter followers and Chantel Brown has 27,000. Looking at that, there's no way that that Brown could win. Right. That's like ridiculous. Ha ha. I,
0: oh, and she was I, outraised also. Turner yeah, outraised Brown by something like three million bucks.
1: Sure, because, and that points to another way in which these things often play out in our politics now among both parties. That one of the ways that things work out somewhat kind of surprisingly sometimes is that. Um, those who are most motivated, most informed, most committed and engaged with politics have outsized influence on what the parties do, because they're the people who show up and come to the meetings and carry signs and chant and and get engaged, whereas a lot of people who are a little bit more kind of center left or center right, don't pay attention to politics that much, don't watch Fox, don't watch MSNBC, don't hang out on Twitter all day long like all the nice journalists I know, uh, you know, following the news every single day and every minutia, every bit of minutia. those, you, you have this kind of discrepancy in uh, kind of a different kind of power, the kind of the power of organizational oomph And so what you end up with is the appearance that someone like Nina Turner, oh, she's definitely going to win. She speaks well, and I'm a journalist, and I care about how people speak. That's very, very important to me. If they're articulate, I love that. And, uh, you know, I must be, I'm a journalist, I must be very progressive, and so I admire what she's trying to do. And even if I didn't vote for Bernie, I voted for uh, Elizabeth Warren instead, and she obviously was the best person, but... She lost, too. Like, there's this complete mis, kind of misallocation of, uh, of reality and hope uh, among a lot of people who follow politics. And we saw it most memorably, of course, in the 2020 Democratic primaries where, it, where every smart person, and I even include myself, ironically, in describing uh, using that term— um, used uh, you know analysis of these different primary debates and some of the early primary contests and just assumed Biden's got to stumble he's got to go down he's got to capsize you've got all these great progressives in there who who are you know tapped into all that energy and the money on the on the left and in the end they faltered every time and Biden came out on top because the actual voters, In the Democratic Party, not overwhelmingly, but still uh, at this point, they tend to be center-left. And uh, the last point I'll make is you remember we talked a couple weeks ago on here of that Echelon Insights poll that really dug into the electorate and broke it down into different groups. And there was that question about if we had five parties rather than two, how would they work out? And it turned out that the smallest party of all is the far left, the kind of ultra progressive sort of Green New Deal AOC party would would get somewhere around 10% of the vote. So, you Mm -hmm. know, 10% of the vote? That's that's several million people. It's not nothing. It's not 2% of the vote. But that is only a tenth of the country. And so the idea that that tenth uh, would actually be controlling one of the two parties and determining its future, I think, is unrealistic and probably better for the country as well.
0: Bill... um... Chantelle Brown, the winner, said, quote, this is about making progress. And sometimes that takes compromise. Uh, because when you demand all or nothing, usually you end up with nothing, unquote. Um, so I'd like you to dig in, if you would, a little bit to how Brown won this race. I mean, partly she pointed out um, how extreme Turner was that she refused to say who she voted for in 2016. She famously compared the vote in 2020 to excrement uh, that found both candidates uh, that unappealing. Um, and, uh, and Brown and her supporters were able to point those things out to voters.
4: Uh, very effectively. Uh this is a strongly African-American district. And as we learned during the Democratic primaries in, in 2020, uh, most African-Americans are, when you get right down to it, quite moderate and realistic. Uh, they are not impressed by eloquence. Uh, they are interested in real results. As I listened to Megan... Uh, I was reminded of a famous anecdote involving the late lamented Mary, Mayor Marion Barry. Uh, and a journalist asked him, well, aren't you worried that Jesse Jackson is going to mount a, a challenge to you for mayor of, of Washington, D.C.? And Barry didn't miss a beat, and he said, ah, Jesse doesn't want to run anything except his mouth. <laughs> There's a real sensitivity in the African-American community uh, to people who talk big but haven't demonstrated the capacity to get real business done for the community and make their lives better. And so I I think that Chantel Brown was appealing to exactly the same kind of constituency that Jim Clyburn did in South Carolina when he turned around South Carolina and the entire Democratic primary. And he said explicitly uh, that, you know, that we know Biden and he gets things done for us and he's, you know, and he's not a morning glory here this morning and gone by evening. Uh, This leads to a broader point about the Democratic Party. Uh, This is based on some research that I did a few weeks ago. In every single national election where a Democratic candidate has come out on top. This goes back many, many cycles. Uh, moderate voters who call themselves moderate have contribute, contributed a larger share of the candidates' total winning votes uh, than people who call themselves liberal or very liberal or progressive. And Joe Biden's uh, victory in 2020 was no exception to that. Uh, and by a considerable margin, moderates contributed more votes to his winning coalition than liberals and progressives did. And that, despite the fact, there, there has been a shift in the center of gravity in the Democratic Party. Uh, there are some districts where you can win by situating yourself within the midpoint of the Democratic Party— But there are many other districts and states, and surely the country as a whole, where you tend to do better by approximating the midpoint of the country rather than the midpoint of a single party. Uh, And so there's a a real optical illusion here that tends to magnify the political impact of the most left-leaning portions of the Democratic Party in a way that the facts simply don't bear out.
0: Okay, Linda, let's just take a moment to think about things in the Republican Party. Um, there were two primary races where uh, Trump endorsed a candidate. In one case, his endorsed candidate lost, and in another, uh, his candidate won uh, after he dumped some significant cash in at the last minute so that people wouldn't be able to say that he lost two in a row. Um, On the other hand, you know, he railed against this uh, proposed infrastructure deal and didn't seem to have much effect on the Republican senators who are negotiating it and planning to vote for it. Um, But uh, but is the Republican Party, um, in your judgment, uh, getting to a
3: post-Trump era or not? (laughs) I don't think we know entirely yet. I mean, certainly in the 15th congressional district in Ohio, where uh, the Trump candidate, uh, who, by the way, was uh, once described by uh, a, a apparently a Republican who remained anonymous, but a Republican uh, called him the swampiest swamp creature out there, the The candidate was Mike Carey. He uh, was a lobbyist for 20 years for the coal industry. Mm. Um, But uh, he was running in a very, very crowded race. I think there were 10 other people in that race. Uh, But they included a state representative and a state senator, as well as the former Columbus, Ohio NAACP president, Uh, So you would have thought that he would not have come up uh, with the kind of victory he did. I mean, he won uh, overwhelmingly. And I think that uh, he won, I guess, 37 percent. Well, it's not overwhelming. It's still a plurality. But the next best person did 13 percent. So obviously, the Trump endorsement. Uh, I think, played a role in that. Uh, this is Ohio. Trump is still very popular in Ohio. It remains to be seen um, what this will mean nationwide, um, whether it will have uh, the kind of, uh, you know, role that, that Trump uh has played in the past, whether he will continue to be able to play that role. I am betting that he won't. Uh, I am betting that over time his influence is going to diminish. It doesn't mean it's going to diminish in a Republican primary. Uh, in a congressional seat that is safely Republican. When you get a seat that, you know, has only gone uh, Democrat once uh, since 1967 and that then only for uh, one term, you're talking about a very, very, um, you know, Republican-safe uh, seat. And, and there, where you have the hardest of the hardcore, uh, Trump may still play a role. But I, you know, I think this... The whole shift that we've seen in the Democratic Party is very bad news for the Republicans uh, coming in the 2022 election and in 2024. The more moderate that the Democrats become, the more that uh, people who are either independent or may even have been Republican but really uh, despise Trump uh, can be comfortable with voting for a Democratic candidate— uh, the worst it's going to be for the Republican Party. So um, I actually think the news out of this spate of special elections is good news for the Democrats and may not be good news for the Republicans.
0: I agree. Uh, all right, let us now turn to our highlight or lowlight of the week, and I'll start with Bill Galston. Uh, I want
4: to announce the eruption of a new scandal, In Washington, D.C. Uh, I will call it Whiskeygate. Uh, Here's the background, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, all over America. Uh, The Japanese government, in gratitude for something or other during the previous administration, sent the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo a bottle of whiskey valued at $5,800 dollars. The bottle cannot be located, it was not sent to the National Archives, or suitably accounted for. Where did the whiskey go? If it has been consumed, who consumed it at $500 a sip? The American people are demanding answers to these questions, and I'm here to bang the table on their behalf. Oh. All
0: right.
3: (laughs) Linda. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to go from that very funny uh, one to something a little bit more serious, but very important. And that is a study that was out this week from the Center for Migration Studies of New York which uh, gives the best estimate on the population of undocumented persons uh, in the United States. You know, when we see all the stories of 180,000, 200,000 people being apprehended at the border, I think the impression is left with most uh, people that we have a flood of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of undocumented uh, persons coming into the United States. And it's just an inaccurate picture. Uh, Part of the reason that we get that impression is the best um, documentation that we have for the population of of undocumented on a month-to-month basis is the number of people who are apprehended at the border. And that's often used as a proxy to try to let us know what's happening in terms of that population. But the more serious issue is how many people actually get in and stay here. And it turns out the undocumented population has gone down. The most recent number is that there are 10.3 point uh, three five million undocumented immigrants. That is down significantly uh, from the uh, period uh, in 2010. That uh, population, by the way, uh, most uh, many of them, 38 percent of them, are parents of U.S. citizens. Uh, And by the way, 59% of that population speak English well, very well, or they only speak English. So uh, I think this is some news that should calm some of the fears from people who somehow think our country is being overrun uh, by illegal immigrants. Um, It's not quite what it seems when you only hear the figures of the people who are apprehended, most of whom are, in fact, immediately turned around and sent back uh, across the border. Okay. Damon Linker. Well, this week,
1: uh, I want to uh, highlight uh, an essay by, um, I I think, someone who's a friend of some of us here on the podcast, uh, a writer named Kathy Young, who's made a career out of uh, trying to develop and defend uh, a very thoughtful kind of centrist politics that I think is uh, somewhat close to many of us here. She has a very good long essay in uh, the online publication Arc Digital which is small but growing and could use more readers. So uh, I encourage you to to take a look at them and perhaps subscribe but she uh, this essay in particular is important and is so important that they've actually put it outside the paywall uh, so you can get to it without paying, but uh, you know, don't do too much of that and be a free rider. Uh, the the essay is titled "The Reality of Quote Race Realism and Why It's the Worst Possible Way to Fight Fight Wokeism or Wokeness." Uh, Kathy, in this piece, uh, examines a new book by uh, Charles Murray titled Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. Murray, uh, you know, one time a one-time widely admired uh, figure on uh, the conservative side of things, uh, who got into a, a lot of bit of a lot of controversy over his book in the early 90s, The Bell Curve. Uh, he's a very, very, uh, very polarizing figure uh, with many on the left refusing even to engage with him because they claim he is a racist. Uh, he, he likes to examine problems of race. He likes to look at questions of IQ and to muse about whether uh, discrepancies in, in racial behavior and outcomes and so forth are traceable to that. And again, very, very controversial. Uh, this new book is so controversial that it's been reviewed in very few places, but Kathy looks at it. Uh, looks at how it's been reviewed, uh, watches some podcasts in which Murray lays out his position, and assesses it as really not being very good and really being sort of what his critics tend to claim about him. Uh, so it's a it's a very worthwhile essay to look at uh, closely and to get a sense of what. Uh, you know, what Murray is all about, what the controversy is about, and to see why the way he handles these questions maybe isn't quite as careful as they should be. And they are big questions in our politics right now.
0: Um, I have read Murray's new book, and um, I endorse your recommendation of Kathy's piece. I, I think she, she made the right points. Um, okay, Megan McArdle.
2: Uh, Representative Corey Bush, already mentioned on this podcast for sleeping on the Capitol steps in a protest over the eviction moratorium, uh, has recently come under fire because it turns out that over the last three months, she has spent $70,000 of donated funds on providing personal security for herself. When asked if it was not hypocritical to, uh, to spend that money while simultaneously calling for the police to be defunded, she told CBS News, uh, that she had to do this because the alternative was that she might be in physical danger and told her critics to suck it up. She then pivoted <laughs> immediately from that to saying and defunding the police has to happen. This is all too common an attitude on the left. If you look at this, is not that important because it, it tells you something big about about Cory Bush, what it does tell you is about the way that the the left is often looking at this issue which is that the people who are advocating the academics the activists who are advocating for defunding the police often and the journalists who give them you know uh, lavish airtime and and a respectful hearing are not living in the neighborhoods where violent crime is at the worst The people left in those neighborhoods don't want the police defunded precisely because they can't afford to spend $70,000 paying for private security. And it's those people, not the people who have elegant academic theories about defunding the police, but the people who have to live with the actual results that we should be listening to when we talk
0: about something like that. Amen. All right. I would like to praise Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine, a piece called The Madness of Teachers' Unions Opposing a Vaccine Mandate. And he points out uh, that, first of all, if you look at who has been hurt uh, by the lack of in-person schooling over the last more than a year, um, it has hurt white students, yes, but it's hurt black and Hispanic students considerably more, which should not come as any sort of a shock to anyone. Um, And he says, well, you know, the teachers' union said that they might be in danger of catching uh, the disease from their students, and that's why the schools should not be – there shouldn't be in-person schooling. Fine, so now we have the vaccine, but the teachers' unions are now opposed to vaccine mandates, and furthermore, they're even opposed to having uh, teachers be given priority for vaccination, um, it's just beyond belief. Um, and by the way, he, he gave a, a shout out in the piece. Uh, he said, you know, not all unions were were taking this kind of uh, very unhelpful position. He, he cited AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka, who had endorsed vaccine mandates. And alas, we just learned that he passed away today. Um but, uh, but in any event, the National Education Association uh, is uh, not covering itself in glory here, and uh, neither are other teachers' unions who are simply, you know, pretending to be speaking for the welfare of students, uh, but really seem to now be saying that not only do they want to keep their members safe, but they want to keep their members from even having to work. Um All right. That is all for this week. We thank Megan McArdle for returning and we thank you all for your letters and emails. Uh, I read them all, even if I cannot answer all of them. And uh, we will return next week as every week.